The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. My name is Chris. I am the pastor here. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab grab hold of them and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to spend our time this morning as we study God's Word. Uh, You may open a phone or a tablet, and you can even Google search 1 Peter 4. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair that you may use. Uh, 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to spend our time. 1 Peter 4 in those black Bibles is on page 1015. 1015. Uh, So 1 Peter 4. uh, We are walking through... The book of 1 Peter, it's actually a letter from the Apostle Peter to the churches that are being persecuted in uh, the Roman Empire at this time. And uh, we have been, two, we're about two months in. I think this is week nine in this study. We've got, we've got a month left, uh, so we're about two-thirds of the way through this book. Uh, and, and last week, one of our elders, Eric Shelley, uh, preached on the end of chapter three, did a great job, and specifically talked about preparing to suffer. If you were with us or maybe you watched uh, last week, preparing to suffer was the idea that Peter was talking about. And he said, Eric told us that, that, that we can expect in this life suffering. We can expect to suffer and, in fact, it might even be God's plan for us to suffer. Now, that might blow your mind a little bit that God's plan might include suffering. We're going to talk more about that next week as well, uh, but we had better be prepared for suffering. That's essentially the gist of what chapters 3 and 4 are, are, are hitting on for Christians. We should be prepared for suffering because Peter's going to pick up right where he left off last week. So we're not going to waste any time. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, picking up in verse 1. So follow along in your text with me. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, let's stop right there. Uh, we, in order to handle this text correctly, uh, it, it, we, we have to do some work or, or else it can be confusing because the way that Peter writes can be a little bit confusing. Uh, at the very beginning of our text in verse one, we say, we see the word therefore, okay? Therefore is in verse one. And I want you also to kind of scroll down to verse seven because we're gonna see another therefore. In verse seven, it says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. So there's actually two therefores in our chunk of text this morning. Now, I was not raised in the church, okay? I was, uh, we never never went to church as a kid. I got saved when I was 16. So right in the middle of high school is when I became a Christian and started going to church. And therefore, I did not know how to study my Bible until a couple years after becoming a Christian when I was in college. Um, and, And so one professor I had used to say, whenever you see a therefore in the text, always ask what it's Therefore, <laughs> okay, that's like a that's like a Christian professor pastor dad joke. That's what the therefore joke is. Okay, uh, therefore, whenever you come to a therefore in the text in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, when you come to a therefore, you should take pause and ask yourself what's going on there. 
Why is this transition word, this conjunctive word there? Because every therefore immediately, immediately teaches us that there's a cause and effect going on. There's a cause and an effect. Every time you see a therefore in the Bible, what you can know is that what you're about to read is based on the nature of what was just read. That's how you know what a conjunction does, okay? And what we've, we've seen this in Peter. Peter does this a lot where he talks about one thing and therefore do this. And we've seen this. We saw this in chapter one. And if you remember, I taught you about this if you were here with us, the, the grammar lesson we did, the difference between an, uh, an indicative and an imperative. Remember this? You don't remember my grammar lesson? I'm disappointed, okay? Uh, the, the, the indicative versus the imperative. Let's do a little grammar work. This is good for us in the cold of the morning, okay? An indicative, the indicative mood of a, of, a, of a word or a statement is used to indicate something. It's the indicative. It's a statement of fact or something that has happened. So indictives in the scriptures are about what God has done or what he is currently doing or what he will do, but it is a statement of fact. This is what's happened or what's happening or what will happen. This is what God does. It's an indicative. They're a statement. And then imperatives are commandments. You've, you've heard it or maybe you've said, it's imperative that you do this or that. That's what an imperative is. An imperative is a command. It's what we should do. And as you read the Bible, you will always see that, that the Bible begins with indictives. The Bible always starts with what God has done before it ever moves to what we should do in response. Indictives always precede imperatives. Or sometimes we'll put it like this. Belief always precedes behavior. Just how it works. I'll give you a few examples real quick. God in Genesis chapters one and two created man and woman first. And then he told them, commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. God moved first, and then he gave an instruction. Uh, if you move to the second book of the Bible, to uh, Exodus, God rescues Israel, God's people, from Egypt first, and then he gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law and say, hey, you better obey these laws, or, or Moses ain't going to lead you out of here. No, no, no. He, he saves them. He rescues them. He redeems them. And then he gives his law in order for them to obey him. And, and God saves us in Christian theology, what we believe. God saves us from our sin first. He moves towards us first. And then he says in response to that, live a life of obedience unto me. He moves first and we respond to him. Belief precedes behavior. Indicative precedes imperative. It's, it's so important that you understand this or it will mess up your theology. If you get them flip-flopped, that's problematic. It's problematic because that becomes workspace. That becomes I earn in order to get God's love as opposed to God loves me and therefore I want to live a life of obedience in response to that. And so back to our text. Okay, back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. What's the indicative? And then what's the imperative? Therefore, what's the imperative, the command? We'll look at verse one again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, so there's the indicative, okay? 
Jesus suffered in the flesh. That's referring to the crucifixion of Christ, the cross of Christ. That's the fact. That's the belief. That's the doctrine. Because of the crucifixion, because he suffered physically, because he suffered emotionally, because he suffered spiritually, because he was abandoned and forsaken, because Jesus went to the cross, because Christ suffered, therefore, and then he goes on, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So I think in our text today, uh, Peter has one main imperative for us. And, and I think it runs through the whole of the text. Here's what it is. You see, because Christ suffered, because Jesus suffered the cross, we should stop sinning. That's, that's what I think he's telling, he's commanding the Christians that he is writing to. Because Jesus died on the cross and suffered that, therefore, we should stop sinning. And I think Peter's going to make this case all through the text. This is what I think he means in verse two or in verse one, when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I think he's talking about sinning and he's saying, stop that. Stop sinning. He's saying this, if you're in the midst of suffering, if you are suffering, you first need to remember the, the, the indicative that, that Jesus suffered. If you're suffering, you need to remember Christ, my Lord, my Savior, he suffered. He even suffered in my place. That is true so that, therefore, so that you can resist the temptation to quit following him and fall back into sin yourself. If you're suffering, there's a temptation to sin in order to cover that up or to fix that thing. And he's saying, no, 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 remember Christ and his suffering and that he did not succumb to sin. That's what whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin means. So, so let me simplify it because Peter, I think is, P Peter is, a, is a kind of a confusing writer to listen to. Let me simplify this. I think the idea here is that there are two paths to choose from. In suffering, there are two paths to choose from for the Christian. One is the path of obedience, of faithfully enduring in suffering. The other path is the path of sin. And you can lead one of those two paths. You can walk down one of those two paths. And verse two makes this clear. The two paths, as Peter defines it, if you look again, is human passions or the will of God. Okay, the will of God is the path of obedience. Human passions is following your own Flesh. It's following your own passions. It's that same Greek word we learned a couple uh, weeks ago, epithumia, the passions of the flesh, the, the lusts of the flesh. That's what that word is. And so in suffering, you have the choice of being obedient to Jesus in that suffering or sinning as a means of escaping that suffering. Those are the two choices. Now, in the context, if we think about it in the context before we apply it to ourselves, think about it like this. In Peter's context, he is writing to Christians, to early readers who were very tempted by sin 
when following Christ. There was a real temptation for his readers uh, because remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Roman empire under the emperor Nero at the time that this is being written. Nero is a heinous persecutor of Christians, killing them by the swaths, crucifying them along the Roman roads, burning them alive to light his garden parties. It was not a cool thing to be a Christian. It was dangerous to be a Christian. And therefore, uh, these Christians would have a very real temptation to deny Christ, to deny Christ and just get back to living whatever pagan lifestyle they lived before they became a Christian to avoid this persecution. You might even think, hey, that would actually make a lot of sense. Be burned alive, be fed to the lions, be put in the gladiatorial games of Rome, or just deny Christ and you can go back to living normal. Those were the options for Peter's readers. And I don't think there's probably a, a perfect one-to-one correlation for us today based on that, but, but I do want to apply it like this. Uh, I think for us today, the temptation to choose Sin as a means to avoid or cover up or even medicate our suffering is very real. I think faithfully enduring suffering is hard. In some ways, it's akin to being fed to a lion. But Christ would call us not to move from that path of obedience and veer back into our path of sin. The path that you choose, the direction that you go, whether it's towards obedience or towards sin, is of the utmost importance in your faith walk. Because, and I've said this before, direction determines your destination. Your direction determines your destination. Each one of us, we are all headed in a direction. Our lives are headed in a direction and that direction leads somewhere. And Peter says, is it towards human passions or is it towards the will of God? There's there's directions and it's going to go somewhere. Your direction determines your destination. So here's some examples. Every single one of us, you are going in a financial direction. You're going in a direction and it has a destination. Financially, it has a destination. So if I sat with each one of you and asked you, hey, in 10 years, in a decade's time, where do you want to be financially? Where do you want to be? Most of you would reply, hey, I want to be good. (laughs) Like I want to be stable and secure. I want to be able to provide for my family, for my children. I want to be able to be generous with my money. I want to have that kind of financial freedom in my life. I don't know anybody in their right mind who would reply, hey, you know what? In 10 years, love to be dead broke. I just hope that I'm living off the government up to my neck in debt. Like that's what I'm hoping for. No one would say that. But some of you are on that path. Some of you are headed in that direction. Relationally, relationally, we're going in directions. You're on a direction in your relationships, okay? Okay. I used to talk to college guys uh, all the time about this. Not like our good college dudes here, okay? Some of you college dudes here, like you're legit, okay? These were some sketchier dudes, but, um, but I remember asking one guy in particular, I remember asking one college student in particular, hey, in 10 years, where do you want to be relationally? 
He's like a 20, 21-year-old dude. What, where do you want to be relationally? And he would respond with a description of love that's akin to like a romance movie, like The Notebook, right? I mean, that, that kind of thing, like, like Romeo and Juliet, like a Taylor Swift song. That's what I want, right? And, and that's, that's the kind of game that he would be playing. But then I would ask, okay, so, so like, what are you doing to get there? What are you doing to get there? And I would often hear words like this. Hey, man, right now, I'm 20. I'm 21. I'm just playing the field right now. Like, I'm young. Like, let me just live my life. I'll take care of that once I'm done with college, once I'm done with grad school, once I'm in my first job, once I own my own house. Then I'll start taking that more seriously. And it's like they think it's just going to happen one day. Like, one day, they're just going to put on a rental tux, Okay, I'm like, show up at a church, I'll be standing there, okay? And then some dad is gonna walk his daughter down the aisle, hand her off to this joker to become fought, like, like husband of the year. Like they think it's just gonna happen. And it's like, listen, listen, buddy, that ain't how it works. That is not how it works. You're going in a direction. You're going in a direction and it's taking you somewhere and it ain't to the notebook, my friend. Okay. Ladies, just because I picked on the college dudes for a second, okay? Ladies, I'm seeing this more and more, um, but there is this fitness midlife crisis thing going on right now. It, I, I hear some snickers, okay? But um, I'm seeing this more with middle-aged women where there's this fitness midlife crisis thing where you're trying, listen, so desperately to find an identity in how you look. Uh, and, and listen, you, you look great, okay? You do, you look great, okay? I don't wanna, and, and hear me, I'm all for fitness. I'm all for being fit and good health, like get after it, go to the gym, you know, get your gains, do your things, okay? But listen to me, time is not your friend. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. This is about as good as it gets. Uh, it, it, it just, it ain't getting much better, okay? It just, I, I love y'all, I love y'all. And get it, get after it, okay? You can tweak it, and you can crunch it, and you can work out, and you can try and meet your reunion goal, or whatever it is that you've got up on your fridge. Like, you can do those things. But I'm just telling you, time and gravity always win. It's physics, okay? It's science, it's science. And I'm just telling you guys, gals, uh, the, direction of, the direction of valuing youthful beauty above all else leads you somewhere. It leads you somewhere. Instead, you ought to get on a course, a direction where your value is in who God says you are, not in what you look like. I like that. I like that, amen. I'll take that all day. I mean, I could go on and on. If you're married, you're on a direction. You're going in a direction in marriage. You don't just accidentally skip and frolic your way into like life-giving, deep, meaningful marriages. It takes work. It takes direction. If you're flirting with somebody at work, listen, that's a direction. If you're flirting with somebody at work, you're married or you're dating somebody else and you're flirting somebody, that's a direction. I know people who are heartbroken over their divorces heartbroken over them, and they started as innocently as this. It was just lunch. It's, it's just a lunch. He's my work friend. Oh, she just gets me. She's a good listener. 
It's just a lunch. There's nothing wrong with lunch. There's nothing sinful about lunch. But it's a direction. You don't think porn is a direction? Oh, heavens. I meet with too many people. Pornography will kill your intimacy. It will numb your soul. I've seen it from men and from women. It's ravaging people. It's a direction, and you don't want the destination that comes with that direction. And I'm just, listen, I'm not just preaching to you, okay? I'm, I'm preaching to me. I've gotten myself there. Since becoming a Christian, I found myself at times wondering, God, how did I get here? You ever wonder that? God, how did I arrive here? And all I'm saying is, you just need to turn 180 degrees, and you'll see the direction you came from. Your direction always leads to your destination. I'll tell you about mine in just a minute, but Peter is saying this. He's saying, stop sinning. It's going to lead you somewhere that you don't want to be. So stop. Please, please take this seriously. I've, I've gone over on those first two verses. Let's look at verse three, okay? We'll keep going. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. See, Peter is reminding his readers of the direction they used to be going. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them of who they used to be enlisting all of these things. They were living lives of licentiousness. That's what they were doing. This isn't a comprehensive list of every sin. He's just saying, this is where you guys were coming from. In the Roman Empire, this kind of licentious behavior is what you used to do. Uh, and Peter says, that time is past. That time's over. Don't go back to that. It's tempting. It's tempting to go back to the things that we used to do. Anybody struggle with stuff for longer than they wish they struggled with stuff? Anybody honest enough to say, hey, the things that I struggled with in my teens or in my 20s or in my 30s or in my 40s, I'm still wrestling with today? You ever wonder why some of those things are nagging and they won't go away? P Peter's like, you gotta stop. You gotta put this stuff to death. The time has passed for these things. And so I say it all the time. Christian, you don't have to keep doing the same things you did because you are no longer the same person you were. You have the power of Christ in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. God has called you to, and you have been given the power to stop sinning. So Peter's saying, that's past. Don't go back there. Verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, so he's, he's referring now to the, the pagans, the non-Christians all around them. Now that they have started following Christ, he's saying, hey, th th that crew that you ran with before you started following Christ in that past time, that crew, they're, they're, they're not going to understand what you're doing. They might not understand you. Why wouldn't you want to keep doing the things that you've always been doing? That's not who you are anymore, but to you, you're like, why wouldn't you keep doing that? Why wouldn't you keep partying? Why wouldn't you keep looking at porn? Why wouldn't you keep doing the same stuff? What's the, what's the big deal? 
And they might be confused, but some people, the text even warns us, might be defensive. Some might be confused and just be like, you're just kind of weird. Some people, the text says, might malign you. They might say things against you. And then maybe, maybe they, they start with little jabs. Just little things. Oh, you're a Christian now, huh? You're a Christian? So no more fun for us? We can't hang out anymore? You part of that fathom cult? Your window stickers in your car and your animal shirts? Like what? Is that what you're about now? Please don't get any animal shirts. This is my thing, okay? <laughs> or, or hear me, they might even get mean about it. It might move from innocent jabs to, so does it mean you're, you're a racist now? Oh, are you a homophobe now that you're a Christian? You're going to start judging me? You're going to start throwing that on me? Is that what you are about now? Peter says it could go that way. It could go that way. And hear me, I, it's been just over 20 years since I became a Christian, and it's gone that way for me. From friends, even family, who started being confused and moved into maligning. So Peter is going to warn us that it's not all roses for those of us who follow Jesus. And then he says this in verse 5. But they, again referring to that old crew, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, the reason why the world will malign us, malign you, is because they don't have a hope that goes beyond this world. That's what he says. Naturally, your old crew are going to do the most to get the most out of this temporal existence, this temporal life. So their mantras will be, feel good, chase your dreams, make the most of, of what you have, do what you want. Spend it all on yourself and on your kids, right? right, right. Make a bucket list. Go check those things off because this is all the life you've got. So better get, start, better get busy, start living now. Sounds like a country song, right? I think it is. <laughs> what else is there? What else is there except earthly happiness? What else? And listen, that framework makes logical sense if you don't think there is anything else. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're dead. But when you do live that way, or when you, when you do live the way that a Christian lives, when you don't live in this licentious behavior the way that you used to, it can disturb people because it tells them that the whole basis of their life is off. Both will be judged, is what the text says. Both Christians and non-Christians will give an account before God on the day of judgment. So Peter's telling, he's talking to Christians, remember? He's not talking to the world, he's talking to Christians. And he says, hey, don't go back to that life. As tempting as it might be to go back and hang out with your old crew and run with them and do the same things that you used to do, don't go back. It would be foolish for you to go back to relapse into that. Even though you're in the midst of hostility and persecution and criticism, don't go back because y'all are gonna be judged. Do you realize that judgment is not for them out there? It's for us in here? Everyone 
the living and the dead, will be judged by him, Jesus Christ. So live in, in light of that is what he's saying. And then verse six has been notoriously confusing. So let's read this. Um, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, that's a confusing passage. Does this mean, what does it mean to be to preaching to those who are dead? Like, what does that mean? Uh, so let, first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? Just so you can be clear. Uh, this verse does not mean that, if, uh, that, that somebody goes and preaches the gospel to people after they're dead. That might be what it sounds like on the surface, but, but that would go against the whole passage that we just read. That would actually contradict everything Peter just said. Peter's whole point is to tell these people, don't indulge in sin. He's not saying, hey, sin as much as you want, because even after you die, there will be a second chance for you to accept Christ again. That's not what Peter's saying. Hebrews 9.27 is very clear. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You die once, and then there is judgment. There is no second chance. So that's not what Peter's talking about. What then does he mean by preaching to those who are dead? Well, see, I think in context, the best way to understand those who are dead is that it refers back to Christians in their pre-saved state. That before we were saved, we were dead. We were dead while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were in our sin and we were dead. And because of the gospel, that physical death and even the judgment to come after physical death is not the last word for Christians. That's what I think he's talking about in that confusing verse. So Peter, what he's saying is this, because Christ suffered, since Christ suffered the cross in your place, therefore, stop sinning. Stop it. Don't go back to those things. Because this isn't all there is. There's something else. There's something more. There's something eternal. Don't settle for the temporal. And then that's what transitions us into the second therefore in our text. Look at verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Or if you're reading a different translation, it says, the end is near. It's where they get this for poster boards, okay? The end of all things is at hand, therefore. So there's the second therefore. So remember, indicative imperative. Belief, behavior, remember that. Here's the second indicative. The first was Christ has suffered. The second indicative is the end is near. Okay, uh, so why should we stop sinning? Because Christ has died and because the return of Christ is coming. It's near, it's imminent. Okay, why should we stop sinning? Because of those two things. Christ died and suffered and, and he's coming back and it could happen at any time. It could happen soon. So change how you live in light of that. Now, you might say, if you know anything about history, well, wait a minute, this was written like 2,000 years ago, pastor. So Peter, two millennia ago, thought that Jesus' return was imminent? Two millennia seems like a long time. 
Seems like he missed that prediction. What do we do with the last 2,000 years of waiting? Was Peter wrong here? And many people have taken verses like this one to say that the New Testament writers were off their, off their rocker. Like mistaken about the prediction that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. They scoff. They say, hey, see, the apostles were wrong. You can't trust this. They were wrong because he didn't come back and he's not coming back. But notice Peter doesn't say, hey, he's coming back in my lifetime. He just says the end is near. The end is at hand. This isn't some end times prediction like we might think. It's actually a different thing altogether. So I don't know if you know this. There's a book written in uh, the 80s that was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. This is a real book. You can buy old copies of it on Amazon, I promise. And in this book, it is predicted that Jesus' second coming will happen specifically on September 11th or 12th or 13th of 1988. It was a huge seller. Sold millions of copies up to a certain point, okay? Uh, But it sold a lot of copies. By the way, I love that there's a new expanded edition. I don't know what that means. But that is an, if if you want a good pastor appreciation gift, I want that book, okay? But I need the expanded edition, okay? Um, I'm not sure I trust the first one. Like, is, is that what Peter's doing right here? Is he the end of the world guy? Is he the, the end is near, right? Standing outside of the Broncos game. Is that what he's, is that what he's doing? Is that, is he crazy? Suffice it to say, just in case you were wondering, September of 1988 came and went. And the world did not, in fact, end uh, at all. Uh, But interestingly enough, this same guy uh, came out with a book the next year claiming that he was simply off in his calculations. I'm not kidding. Title of that book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. Understandably, it didn't sell quite as hot as this first one. but, but, But listen, that's not what Peter's doing. That's what fringe nut jobs do. God bless them, but that's, that's not how it works. Jesus says, nobody knows the time or the hour. Jesus himself said, I don't even know when it's going to happen. Only my father knows. So this isn't what Peter is doing. And hear me, it's not what we should do either. Please don't succumb to YouTube channels and books and literature and posts that promise these sorts of things. It's crazy. Peter is not predicting when the end is coming. Peter is emphatically telling them to live as if that end was coming soon. He's telling them, stop sinning. You don't know when he's coming back. It could be today. It could be right now. It could be now. No, 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 now. (laughs) That would be impressive if that happened. But, (laughs) But would we even know it happened? I don't know. Okay, I don't know. But the end is at hand. The end is near. So, therefore, back to verse 7. And I got to finish this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied 
grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that, ever, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I could preach a whole nother sermon on that. And I'm not gonna. You're welcome. Because we've got to go dunk some people. But, <laughs> but I want us to, to look at the very last verse, verse 11. For the sake of time, let me point out the end. It says this, all of these things, all of these commands for us, loving one another, serving one another, blessing one another, doing things for other people, all of that is in light of Christ's suffering, the end being near, you stopping sinning, in order, verse 11, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the point. Bring glory to God. The reason why we do all this stuff, the reason why we try to stop sinning is to bring glory to God. Now, let me end. Here's how I want to end um, today. I doubt if anybody in here is shocked that today at a church from a preacher, you're hearing a message that says you should stop sinning. Right? I don't, I don't I don't know that there's a more on-brand message from a Christian preacher than stop sinning, right? No one's like, oh man, I hoped that they were gonna talk about money today. No, we're talking about sin today. We're talking about sin today. But my hunch, my hunch is, while this, this message may be on point, you might be saying to yourself, hey, pastor, that's easier said than done. Hey, it's easy to say that because you're a pastor, but this whole stop sinning thing is hard. Gosh, I'd love, I'd love to stop sinning. But I've just got some stuff. Like I've got some stuff that I'm struggling with and I just can't seem to get past it. And hear me, even if you knew about it, if anybody found out about it, I'd be kicked out of this place. I'd be tossed out, I'd be judged, I'd be kicked to the curb. You know how many people I've heard say that to me? I could, not, could never tell you what I'm struggling with because God would strike me dead in this place. Listen, that's not how it works. I love you. You're going to die anyway. <laughs> that's not, he don't need to strike you. There's a point at a time for man to die and then comes the judgment. You're going to die. That's not the issue. But I've told you earlier that, that I've gotten myself to this place as well. I've gotten myself to the place where I've wondered, God, how'd I get here? How did I get to this place? How did this happen? Now, I've shared this story a number of times from this stage, and we share this in our membership class, but, but about five years ago, in 2019, uh, I was in an elders meeting here at Fathom, uh, and our church had just turned four years old. We planted the church in 2015. We had just celebrated four years as a church. And in that elders meeting, uh, the elders informed me that someone had accused me of plagiarizing portions of some of my recent sermons in that elders meeting. The elders confronted me on it, and, and in that room I confessed. I, I told them, yeah, yeah, it's true. Gosh, I, I should have given credit. I, I should have said where that stuff was from. I shouldn't be doing that. I wanted you to think I had the good words, the, the, the strong words, the powerful words, but I, but I let my pride get in the way. I'm sorry. 
Well, by the next morning after that elders meeting, the gossip mill had done its work here at our church and there were multiple people calling for my immediate termination as lead pastor of the church. Um, and it, I don't know if you've been there when, when sin has come out or you've confessed it, but it was like the, the bottom of the pit of my stomach fell. I don't know if you know that feeling where you're like, uh, uh, like you can't even breathe. I didn't, I didn't know if I was gonna lose my job. I didn't know if I was gonna lose my church, the church I had planted. I didn't know if I was gonna lose all of my friends. You're, you guys are like my friends. I didn't know if I was gonna lose all of you. I didn't know if I would ever get to pastor again. I was like, how am I gonna pay for my life? I have a, I have a three-year-old. How am, I, how am I gonna do this? How, how am I gonna provide? And I, and I found myself in this tailspin and I was asking the question, God, how did I get here? Like I'm the pastor. How did, I, how did this happen? And it took me months, actually, of prayer and processing and seeing a therapist and a counselor. And, and it took time to really unearth and figure out what had built up in my life to get me to that place. You know that question is not, not as easy to answer as you'd think. Because I had to look backwards and I had to do a whole bunch of unwinding to figure out what it was that led me to there. But the wake of mess that my sin caused was huge. It was huge. I was put on a nine-month process of church discipline. So for nine months, I was not the lead pastor of this church. I finished 2019 not in that role. More than half of our congregation uh, left, some some, some, some left because of what I had done, Many others left because of what others did in light of what I had done. Started this domino effect. Okay, we were put as a church in a financially precarious situation right on the the fringe of COVID. Remember 2020? That was real fun too. Gosh, if this thing almost didn't just blow up. Some of you were there. I mean, it was bleak. Literally, Fathom Church almost closed. We almost closed our doors Now, while I've talked about this numerous times, there's one part that I don't think I've ever shared before. Um, And so let me share this. Uh, I talked with one of our elders right in the midst of all that mess. And I'm sitting in his living room and he was trying to encourage me that I was gonna make it through this. I was in despair. Depression, anxiety, those things run thick in my family. And so I I was in a place where it wasn't good. Some might say, I was wrestling with my mental health. I was in those moments. And I said to this elder, I said, man, how how is our church ever going to recover from this? Gosh, how am am I ever going to recover from this? Who's ever going to want to come listen to the plagiarist pastor again? Who would do such a thing? And this elder said something that, that I won't forget, I mean, I can see it verbatim, him saying this. He said this, Chris, if this church isn't a place of redemption, even for you, then it deserves to close. We don't shoot our wounded. Hey, church, right here, stop sinning. Stop sinning. 
it has horrible consequences. Not just for you. There's, there's consequences that you can't even get your head around that come from sin. For you and for everyone around you, you say to yourself, okay, how? How do I stop sinning? Like, it's a nice story, Chris, but how do I stop? And I'll just say it like this. You should out yourself. You should, you should out yourself. The biblical word for that is confess. You should confess. Well, I don't know if I can handle, I don't know if I can handle confession. I don't know if I can handle what people will think if I confess. Hey, listen, that day with the elders was one of the worst days in my ministry life, but two days later was the worst day of my ministry life because we gathered in this room 200 people and I stood up on the stage and I confessed to every single one of them what I'd been doing. And it was the worst day in my ministry life and it was the beginning of me finding a freedom and a grace that I did not know ex could be experienced by a Christian, let alone by a pastor in a church. You listen to me, I say all the time, Fathom Church is a place where it's okay not to be okay. It's, it's okay not to be okay here. It's, it's just not okay to stay that way. It's just not okay to stay there. Even for me, it has to be, even for me, a safe place for it to not, to not be okay. Just can't stay there. This place has to be that kind of safe place. Or hear me, we should close shop. 2019, 2020, who cares? We should close the doors of this church if we're not a safe place to confess. We don't shoot our wounded. But we also don't let them lay there and bleed out all over. The, we want to help you move forward. Sometimes, listen, sometimes the greatest gift that God will give us is to bring us to the end of ourselves. To bring us right to the edge and then kind of shove us off. You gotta confess. So I wonder where you're at this morning. I mean, I don't know. You hiding some stuff? Stuff that you don't want anyone to know. Feeling guilt? You feeling shame? You tired? I mean, how much energy does it take to hide stuff? How much worry do you have of being found out? You feeling those things? Hey, it, if you've got some stuff that you need to get off your chest, that you need to confess, the invitation today is to come. If you've got some sin that you're still running to, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I'm, I'm the pastor of this place and I needed to confess. You've got something that you're still running to, here's the offer. You come. Maybe you've never actually admitted that you're a sinner. Maybe you need Jesus to save you today. Hey, the invitation for you is you come. You come. You confess you repent, you surrender, you bow. It's why we have people every Sunday to pray with you in the back of the room. We'll do it again. Hear me, church, I love you. It's okay if you're not okay. I don't want you to stay there. It's not okay for you to stay there. 
the time of your sin is past. It's time to choose the direction, the path of the will of God. May God help us in this. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. This is a difficult text. It's chock full of stuff that we could misunderstand or misapply, but Lord, the the big idea, the big message is that because you sent your son and he suffered in our place, because he died and he rose, and in that suffering, he never sinned, he never stumbled, he never faltered. Because of that, we have the ability to actually stop sinning. We aren't just freed from the penalty of our sin when we follow you, Jesus. We are actually empowered to start to say no to the power of our sin. So God, I'm, I'm guessing there's some in this room who are, who are locked in some things right now. Things they don't want to talk about, things they don't want to admit, things they don't want to share. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd empower them right now. Encourage them. Encourage them to confess. Encourage them push to push through the pain of that immediate confession to find the freedom that exists only on the other side. Spirit, you're the preacher of Fathom Church, the true preacher. Preach to our hearts now. I pray an overflow of confession would happen as a result. And so God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this message. For those who who don't follow you, Lord, I pray that you begin to move and stir and, and even create a desire to follow you through the power of your gospel. So Lord, we love you. We bless you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit. And all God's people said, amen.